Hello cult hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad, Stephen Matha, and I'm also interested in cults. I was a member for the first 30 years of my life. Uh, these days I work as an organisational psychologist um, and yeah, very, very excited today to welcome a guest. Today we've got Daniel Shaw, who's a psychotherapist in private practice. He's the author of two books about narcissism and recovery from systems of traumatizing narcissism. So we're going to get him to tell us all about what that means. Mm -hmm. um, he's also an expert in court recovery. Um, in 2018, he received um, the International Cultic Studies Association Award, uh, the Margaret Thaler Singer award for advancing the understanding of coercive persuasion and undue influence so welcome to the podcast dan thank you so much for inviting me it's great to be here you're very welcome so i've called you dan i did ask before we started how you preferred to be addressed so i'm not being over familiar um it's no. it, it's really great to have you on um dan obviously i've i've been um researching you and uh, what you you know where you come from i think our listeners would be really interested in knowing a bit about your story um it yeah. intersects a few things that we're interested in so maybe you can tell us how you got interested in um both psychotherapy and cults i suppose sure well in my i was a theater major in college and in my 20s i was trying to uh develop a career as an actor and, and um, by the end of my 20s it really was I was so discouraged and I had been exposed to Siddha Yoga through uh, friends in the theater world because a lot of people were um, meditating with Swami Muktananda back then this is in the mid to late 70s and um and it had infiltrated the theater world. So I'd heard about it, but I, I was very skeptical of such things. But when I kind of hit a wall at the end of my 20s, approaching 30, um, I was I was pretty frustrated with uh, not getting good psychotherapy at the time, um, not really feeling like I knew where I was going to go. Or... And then I was in the health food store and there's a magazine about meditate. And I see it's that Swami that those friends of mine knew. And um, I picked it up and I very quickly started to like feel the magic. <laughs> Whatever that magic is, I was feeling it. Okay. Um, it felt like something was lifting me uh, or, or giving me hope. And then uh, fairly quickly, I... Um, read more. I went and met this guru up in their ashram. It was a couple of hours upstate from where I live in New York. I was in Manhattan at the time. And um, and then before I know it, I'm moving into their Manhattan uh, residential facility. I'm becoming the manager there. Um, and then I'm out driving a taxi trying to save up money to go to India and join the guru's tour. Uh, so I spent my whole 30s on the staff of this organization. By that time, Muktananda had passed away, and I was following one of the successors he appointed, who's known as Guru Mai. And all in all, I was involved 13 years, probably around eight or nine of those years, as a full-time uh, worker and uh a community member living in 
and around the guru, both in residential facilities, old beaten down hotels upstate, and also on tour, because um, Guru Mai was selling enlightenment in hotel ballrooms all over the world. And um, I was supporting those tours, supporting the whole project. And of course, not making any money doing any of that. But, you know, getting fed and housed and now and then some new clothes. So that ended in 92 when Gurmai said I should move out of the ashram and get a job. And I was devastated. I didn't want to leave, even though I was completely miserable, <laughs> which is a Probably very similar to a lot of people in cults. You're miserable mm-hmm. and you don't want to leave, right? It's um, interesting. I look back, right? I look back now and think, wow. But I actually, I was lucky when she said move out. I was still follower for another two years, but in that period of time, not living in the community, little by little, I was regaining my, um, my sort of pre-cult personality like um and i fell in love and wanted to get married during that time with somebody who was also living in the ashram but not as deep into it as i was and um so we were dating for a year or so we we were both still followers we got married still followers and then we were living in brooklyn as most younger couples do except i wasn't that young by then i was already in my 40s and i had to figure out you know what what i was really going to do with my life and i i did a lot of searching around uh uh still a follower and i was looking at marketing and advertising and public relations because that's what i did in the ashram in the cult right. mm-hmm. and uh all of that made me uh pretty uh discouraged i didn't like that that wasn't me and i was in therapy um gurmai had her own therapist that reported everything to her and then she would throw it in your face you know breaking all the confidentiality rules of therapy but i had a therapist who wasn't part of the community and little by little the first break uh, happened when i said out loud the guru is cruel and that therapist was a nice guy, but he said, oh, you mean tough love, right? I said, no, no, I mean cruel. And little by little, I, as I let that, as I let myself know those things, um, I, by that time I had figured out I want to be a therapist. I'm going to go back and get a graduate degree in social work, which in the States is a good degree to become a licensed clinical psychotherapist. Although I've had many, many years more training than just that degree. And um, and literally just as I started grad school is when I woke up to uh, the fact that I'd been in a cult. There was an expose in the New Yorker magazine that was very well written. But in advance of that coming out, I had heard the stories about what led to it. It had to do with... Uh, sexual harassment and abuse of young women in the community, mm-hmm. whispers of which I had always heard, but had had really never wanted to take seriously. I wanted that not to be true. So 
I made it disappear in my head pretty much, right? Yeah. Now I understand that as dissociation, uh, which I can talk a little more about later. But anyway, right, right as I begin grad school, I wake up, I realize I was in a cult. And then I started, um, in addition to the um, graduate program, I was also getting psychoanalytic training and I was in therapy and began to read about narcissism. And I realized, wow, this is how I can start to understand this guru and my relationship to this guru. So to the, the cult, in my case, was very focused on a leader, not every cult has just that one leader that you focus on, but mine mine did. Um, if it's not just that one leader, you know, it's the ideology or the particular pastor, say, or whatever. But in my case, it was the leader. And whatever she thought or did or wanted or didn't want became whatever the ideology was. You know, ostensibly, it's ostensibly you're in there thinking, um, oh, we're going to help people in the world learn how to meditate. It'll be a better world for that. And really all you're doing is figuring out how to make the guru feel like they're the biggest, you know, hot turd in the universe, um, that everything revolves around them. And that's all we did in that cult. I realized, you know, after leaving for for 13 years, all I did was figure out how do I make this guru feel like she's the biggest, most important person in the universe. And that was the whole work of the whole group. I think that's true of most cults. If it's a cult, that's what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I finished grad school. I wrote an essay called Traumatic Abuse and Cults. I was all ready to start my psychotherapy practice. And when I put that essay online, all of a sudden, hundreds of people were seeing it. This is 19... 96 around there. And so some of the people started talking to me. I now had a license to practice. So I was pursuing a general psychotherapy course, but I also began to talk to cult survivors. Of course, I talked to many of the people that also left City Yoga when I did. So we had our own support group. And uh it's been that way ever since. I've always um, worked with the general population, but also with cult survivors. And then when I wrote uh, my first book, uh, it came out tw- uh, early 2014, Traumatic Narcissism. About a year after that, people started to read the book and my, my clients became people who were in families that were similar to the cult structure. With a family member, sometimes siblings, sometimes a parent or both parents, that very much resembled the narcissistic cult leader. So I really have been developing, I'll just say one more thing, I know it's a long answer, but um, what really preoccupied me from the beginning was not why did I get into a cult, what's wrong with me? I mean, it's so obvious why and what was wrong. I was miserable. I was frustrated. I had gaps in my upbringing that led to insecurity, et cetera, et cetera. We could, you know, that subject is is no, a no-brainer. Uh, and I was vulnerable to influence at a very vulnerable time in my life. But what I really wanted to understand was who, why do cult leaders behave this way? 
And over time, I realized they all behave exactly the same way. And so do certain people in your life, bosses, um, family members, partners, even your own doctors or therapists might have that same way of behaving. That's what I wanted to understand. So that's what traumatic narcissism is about. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Because oh, there's so much, um, so much I want to um i want to ask you about i'm sure you're the same celine um start writing notes <laughs> yeah, yeah um so so this um this phrase that you use in your in your book so i've been reading your first book um and you talk about traumatizing narcissist relational system so uh, right. just repeat that for our listeners traumatizing narcissist relational system um yeah. and i feel like certainly in your first book this is the the framework that you're using to understand both the cult leaders and what's happening to people within those groups. So uh, maybe I, you could um, tell us a little bit about what that actually means. Basically. Right. Yeah. Well, what I realized was that um, there's, you know, the reason there's a cult is because of who the leader is. If the leader is this kind of a narcissist, uh, extremely narcissistic person who has come to have like this delusional belief in their own perfection and superiority. Along with that delusional belief about themselves is this uh, sense that they're infinitely entitled to whatever they want. Anything they want or say or do is right. And therefore, um, if you want to be in their world, you have to prove, you have to show that you agree. Yes, everything you say, do, want is right. And um, so I saw that person who leads, who becomes a cult leader as this kind of narcissist with a delusion of omnipotence. So that's the first phrase that I like to use, delusion of omnipotence. Like, if you think you're God, you are delusional. God doesn't take a human form. Now, some of these religions will say, oh, that's not true. God does. But no, God does not because God is perfect. If you believe in God, human beings cannot be perfect and cannot be gods. That's like why there's God and humans. They're not the same. But these cult leaders insist that actually I've crossed that boundary and I am the same as God. Omnipotent means all-powerful. So they they believe in their their all-powerfulness and I guess create a system that that then um backs that up that supports that that delusion. That's right. So so they so they start out with that delusion. Now I wanted to understand well how they come by that delusion. Mm. Usually I've learned through studying the biographies of the leaders that these are people who grew up with a great deal of shame and humiliation as part of their background. Maybe they were bullied. Um, the Japanese grew with the nerve gas, Shoko Asahara. <clears throat> Robert J. Lifton wrote an excellent book about him, which details his humiliating um, upbringing and how does he solve the problem of being so shameful and humiliated? He develops this delusion of omnipotence. I am perfect and all-knowing, all 
powerful and you should follow me. It's a delusion, but it's, it's there to defend himself from his own feeling of being just shamefully worthless and, and humiliated, not humble, humiliated, you know, um, and uh, the opposite of shame, uh, humble, right, is, is um, being narcissistic. So, so they become this hyper-narcissistic person, and it's very charismatic and thrilling and exciting for a lot of people, especially if you're kind of feeling powerless yourself and somebody displays that much kind of power and it seems benign, you might get drawn into it. That's what I'm calling the traumatizing narcissist's relational system. And the next part of that phrase is that it's a system of subjugation. That narcissistic cult leader has to experience the power to have control over people in order to feel and sustain this delusion. I am the greatest. Not like Muhammad Ali. He was great. He, he, he actually, in my view, had actual humility. He was not a cult leader. Even though he proclaimed, I am the greatest, it was ironic. Cult leaders have no irony whatsoever about this. And um, I, maybe some of your listeners never heard of Muhammad Ali. Look it up, because I know everybody's younger than me now. But um, he's a wonderful figure, a fascinating person. Somebody very proud of himself with a lot of self-pride and yet not a traumatizing narcissist, right? So you can be charismatic and not be a traumatizing narcissist. But these guys in particular have this delusion that they're perfect and they're gods, and they need to constantly prove that to themselves, and they prove it to themselves by being able to dominate and control other people. And the way that they're able to dominate and control is through subjugation, meaning you make somebody feel small. You make somebody feel aware that they're small and powerless and they should be ashamed of themselves. Every cult is based on the idea that you need to purify yourself in order to be able to experience what the cult has to offer. So, ostensibly, the, the guru, the traumatizing narcissist, is the, the absolute model of perfect purity. And they get to tell you whether or not you're pure or impure. And all the, what they always, always, always reinforces how impure you are, because that's how they subjugate and control you. So if, if they don't want to feel ashamed, small, powerless, they have this delusion about themselves, but they need all of the followers to feel the smallness and the shame and the powerlessness. That's how they have followers. Hmm. As long as I feel like you're the source of my power, because otherwise I have none, then I will stay and support your mission even as in some cults we know to the point of mass suicide, right? So that's the idea. The system that the narcissistic leader creates is this relational system of subjugation. And what's, trauma, what's traumatic for the follower is the loss 
of the integrity of the self, the loss of the faith in themselves, the, the, the sense of their own goodness, because everything has to come from the guru. So what's taken from you is your basic, um, your basic humanity, because now you're impure and you're dehumanized. And as long as you're a follower in a cult, you have you have to purify. That's the trauma. You know, to be made to feel as though you're so, you know, that you're endlessly impure and endlessly required to prove that you're purifying yourself. Yeah. Right? And I guess that that hope is always just like the carrot. Um, just just dangling in front of you that you know if i could just be a bit more pure if i could just be a bit better a bit more perfect then i would reach that and of course that is part of the tactic of the the cult leader to keep it just just enough away from you that you, you never quite reach it absolutely absolutely even when you rise in the ranks mm. there's always somebody above you ready to squash you Yes. Yeah. Um, Celine, um, you've been making notes. So what, what questions have you got for, for Dan? Because I don't want to hog the conversation. No, that's that's fine. Um, I was just sort of thinking about, you know, and you mentioned it being sort of applicable to family structures as well. You know, it's not just sort of, um, sort of the larger court groups and things like that. I was just wondering, um, intersection of the, that is, um, it, do you sort of, court groups as well do you notice more sort of of these narcissistic structures within families when they're also within cults if you see what i mean right. so it, it, right. that multi-layer that multi-ring <laughs> is that more common well, in your experience actually um having a narcissistic uh leader of a family is common in a, in or out of cults so it's not like it's more common in a cult i mm -hmm. don't think I mean, this is anecdotal. I don't have like statistics, but um, my experience is that it might be the case in some of the families who become cult families, and it might not. Um, but it's something that can happen in any family when the somebody in the family has that personality structure, which again is compensating for a sense of being small and shameful by developing this um, delusion of being, you know, perfect and superior, right? So I say omnipotent because gurus go all the way to omnipotent. In a family with just a, you know, a dad, let's say, it's, it could be the mother, the dad, could be one of the siblings, <laughs> You know, uh, there's a, a documentary right now, right? Um, Happy Shiny People, is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah, we want to you know, talk about that. It's fascinating. The senior son became, within that family, mm. another a subset of the cult leader. <laughs> the son was brought up to believe he had the right to dominate the women and, you know, took that upon himself. Um but so, so yes, um, the thing that happened to me was that I left the cult, started to analyze the guru, and then started having clients in my psychotherapy practice who were describing families with exactly that kind of person. And none of them had ever been near a cult. 
And yet within the family, it was the, the same dynamic. That's when I began to see that, oh, this is a relational dynamic or system that is potentially going to occur in any kind of group or in any kind of couple. So mm -hmm. if you do couples counseling uh, and someone and the couple walks in and one of the partners is it is absolutely convinced that they are infallibly perfect and that everything is all the other one's fault. There you're seeing it right there just in a couple. Hmm. Um, you know, and if that doesn't budge, then you've got a problem because if if I'm always right and you're always wrong, you just have to keep submitting more deeply and more deeply until you erase yourself and you don't even feel like you exist, which is what happens if you stay in a cult long enough. So, um, right. So I think what you asked is a great question, but I, I would... I'm always reluctant to say that everybody who got into a cult came from that kind of family because it's really not it's really not the case. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting question. I've got another um, difficult question for you. Dan. <laughs> no, we're going straight um, in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hit you with it now. Um, so, so one of the things that um, interests me, obviously, I, I was raised in a group that, um, in many respects, doesn't fit that sort of pattern of the single charismatic leader there was obviously so i was raised as a jehovah's witness you probably know that right. um oh yeah um my uh my group um there was obviously a, um an individual who started off this group called the bible students and from that there was a number of iterations um so i guess mm -hmm. you know maybe he was a charismatic character i have no idea whether he's narcissistic or not um mm -hmm. but over time it, it becomes sort of a bureaucracy and an administration rather than a than a kind of personality cult i'm i'm sure that you could right. describe certain leaders within the organization in certain congregations in this way but um that wasn't really right. my experience i would say but and here's this is a controversial idea and i've i've floated it a few times and nobody's really agreed with me so it could be i'm completely wrong on this dan um but um in jehovah's witnesses they they worship um essentially yahweh um right the, the common more anglicized way is is jehovah but it's it's basically right. the yahweh right. the the God of the Old Testament, and they believe that this this God is the same God all the way through. I guess, like most yeah. um, most Christians do, but they have much more emphasis on Yahweh than most Christians. So Jesus takes a bit of a back seat, really, for Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. It's really about Jehovah, and um, you know, if you the way you interpret the Bible and interpret this character, this God, Jehovah, Yahweh in the Bible, I think, you know, it's easy to interpret that character as itself a very narcissistic character, you know, so very one minute authoritarian, it's authoritarian yeah. scary, unpredictable, um, jealous gods, uh, no other gods to my name. Um, the drop of a hat will just slaughter uh his own people um right. no no interest in and i i wonder whether in a sense the organization has has created a kind of um a narcissistic character as its leader i'm uh, not necessarily mm -hmm. on purpose but it feels like that and i was i was scared of this god because 
he was so yeah. unpredictable and so on. Um, I mean, obviously, you weren't raised in that in that setting, but I, I just wonder what's your observations about that about my yeah. my theory. <laughs> oh well, I I don't think there's anything uh, wrong about it at all. I would say this that uh, Yahweh has been made an idol to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And by the way, wasn't it Yahweh who said not to worship idols? <laughs> uh, right? So I, I was, uh, my family is Jewish, and I was not raised as a religious observant Jew, and we were secular, and my parents had a socialist leaning. I think that means the same thing in the UK as it does yeah. here. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so they were liberal, progressive people, and uh, they were working class people. But uh, their parents had been religious, uh, and everybody was assimilating in um, America during those 20s, 30s, 40s. And I grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I was growing up those years. And um, so... So, right, um, in Jehovah's Witnesses, and I've worked with some of the people who have left uh, JWs, the Witnesses, um, you know, what you see is the ideology is, and, and Jehovah is made as the idol that must be fetishized in a way, like to be, you know, feared and obeyed and to live inside of you as a, as a frightening uh, kind of shaming power that keeps you controlled or subjugated to the group. Um, you know, Dostoevsky wrote a part of Brothers Karamazov called The Grand Inquisitor, and it's like a standalone story. And he tells in this story, uh, he imagines if Jesus had uh, come into uh, Spain during the Inquisition, that the Grand Inquisitor and the priests would have immediately seized Jesus, locked him up, kept him completely isolated, not allowed anybody to know he had come, because then their power would be destroyed. You know, these systems work in that way. Once they have drawn you in, you must be what you think and what you, what kind of information you get has to be controlled like the use of language has to become you know controlled uh certainly that's the case with a a, a group that doesn't necessarily have a single leader that is idolized it's it then becomes the group and the ideology that is the idol right and um yeah just as a public service announcement that don't worship idols it was good advice <laughs> i wish i had taken it <laughs> yeah absolutely if you're enjoying the podcast you can support it by becoming a patron you can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty and receive a variety of patreon benefits as a thank you don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. 
Thank you for listening. And now back to the podcast. So can I can I go back to the um, the 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 sort of more traditional, I suppose, charismatic cult leader who is a, a narcissist and and so on. Um, right. As a as a character, that's quite an interesting character. Um, and I suppose I'm I'm thinking. Firstly, do they at some level? Do they know, or do they? They must have doubts. In a way, it's those doubts about their own omnipotence that requires the the subjugation of others isn't it so i guess there's there's this voice in their head that's perhaps from their past when they were bullied or when they were belittled that is yes. constantly nagging at them yes i think so but they are um if we look at historical figures um and you know by the way a lot of my thinking i discovered was both uh, influenced influenced by and also um, kind of validated by Eric Fromm's work. Eric Fromm mm. observed Hitler's rise in Germany and wrote a book called Escape from Freedom, which was a bestseller in the 40s, describing what happened to the German people, why they all seemed to just fall under the spell. And, you know be uh become able to dissociate and tolerate the level of evil that was going on there uh it's it's astonishing if you think about it um you know the so if we think about hitler look at the lengths that he had to go to to constantly prove to himself that he was omnipotent Ultimately, he had to he had to find a way to get an entire nation willing to act out the, these uh, you know unspeakable cruelties, um, and yet when it was clear he would be defeated, what did he do? He shot himself in the head. Now, one way to think about that would be that well. Um, Ultimately, a narcissist, this kind of traumatizing narcissist, believes that they are the most powerful force in the universe, and they are more powerful even than death. And if death is going to come, it'll be by their own hands. Death's not going to, you know, humiliate them. They'll they'll be in charge of death, right? It's that um, acute a delusion. So... Is there a nagging voice in the back of their heads? If there is, they are working night and day to keep it quiet. And the main way they do that is through how they control other people. So some cults control a dozen people or three or four people. Man Charles Manson's cult was not that big. Some cults control nations to this day. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever have you ever seen the the most the latest version of the Invisible Man, um, Dan? Have you watched that movie? Oh no, I didn't see that. Um, I did a review of it some uh, a year or so ago, and um, it's definitely worth watching. I think you'd find it fascinating. So, the Invisible Man, sort of a sci-fi classic, but the later version, the newest version, I think two thousand and twenty, something like that. Um, yeah. 
it's really a study of coercive control within a relationship and and the invisible oh, wow. man is the is the abuser in that relationship um you should definitely check it out i think you'd find it really interesting it's uh i, I think it's I a really good and um sort of analogy of of that uh you mentioned a couple of times about um sort of disassociation and i don't think we've ever actually yeah. covered what that means or is which feels like a misstep after so many episodes but would you like to talk about that a little bit <laughs> Yeah, I thank you for reminding me. I do think it is an important subject. I don't think there's a way to understand our own cult involvement without understanding the human mind and the way it is structured to become dissociative. That is an emergency operation of the mind that happens automatically when the system is just overwhelmed, overloaded, overstressed. So there are class, and this has been studied since before Freud, Pierre Genet in Europe, in France was studying this. And, um, and, and his studies have become reclaimed in today's trauma theory and trauma studies. Um, because trauma is understood as, uh, an experience so overwhelming that the mind is forced to dissociate. Now, in the UK, by the way, have you spoken to Alexandra Stein on your program? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, uh, her work is wonderful about this. And yeah. she links it to attachment styles that also naturally create dissociation. Mm -hmm. So in the attachment situation, if a young, if a small child is meant to connect to a parent for safety and protection, but that parent is frightening. The child is is uh, whose brain is not yet developed for language. Even is completely thrown off balance. I need you for safety. You're terrifying me. The child is seen to begin dissociating even before developing language, and then is later seen to have a dissociative uh, structure kind of uh, tendency in the personality. Dissociation is what somebody once, uh, one of the main researchers um, called the escape when there is no escape. So when I was in City Yoga, I was, uh, I was terrified and intimidated by the guru. The guru means to be intimidating as a part of the control operation, you know, intimidating, belittling, and humiliating followers are the main behaviors of the traumatizing narcissist. So I was certainly very intimidated. I'd been belittled. I'd been made to, to feel ashamed, humiliated. Um, and um, in order to believe that the guru was my salvation, I had to try to cling harder to the guru and believe that I, everything that's wrong is my fault. So I'm dissociating at that point that the guru is cruel. And only when I was in therapy a year or so before actually leaving the cult could I finally come out of my dissociation enough to articulate the guru is cruel. Up to that point, I had to dissociate what the, the evidence of my eyes and ears not know what I knew 
and hold, cling to the belief that I'm defective and I need um, redemption and salvation. Um, that's the that's what I have to believe in order to stay connected to the person who is abusing me. So anybody in an abuse situation who can't leave is struggling with the mind's way of trying to escape what's overwhelming or unbearable by not knowing, not knowing it. Yeah, I'll just say one more piece yeah. to that. Combat yeah. veterans are well known to come back from war with PTSD. Mm -hmm. They are unaware often until they get help that those symptoms are directly linked to what they suffered in terms of what they observed and experienced while they were in battle. Um, only with help do they lift out of dissociation to connect those dots and then begin to heal those wounds. So, yeah, dissociation is important uh, for, for people in recovery from cults. So I guess it's like a, a sort of shutting down of your connection to reality. It's um, you described there a kind of um, complete denial of what's going on. And of course, um, gaslighting is a, is a common term within cults. And I guess you're sort of accepting that, um, that reality that you've been presented with. You're not, you're not associating with it in a, in a, in a tangible way or a real mm. way. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, out of your own effort to preserve the relationship mm -hmm. yeah. at any cost, you dissociate from what's really happening and you adopt uh, the gaslighting narrative, which is it's all your fault. You know, mm -hmm. So it's all my fault. You're not being cruel. You're actually this uh, all loving, perfect um leader it's my fault hmm. um you have to dissociate the reality in order not to lose the connection and that's that's why when i left it was preceded by two years not living in the community that bolstered me enough to really make that um leap out of dissociation yeah it's one of the things that um alexander stein talks about um and and other experts in um i think julie jenkinson talks about it as well about the importance of getting away from the situation so physically removing or moving yourself out of that is kind of the first step to recovery yes yes julie's book just came out and i'm sure right. you're aware yeah yeah yeah, yeah. cool no that, that's interesting because i think that before talking about all this kind of stuff all the cult um related um stuff that obviously we, we talk a lot about these days um i'd only heard about it in the in the term disassociative identity disorder um right that's kind of how i started to all i i guess one of the one of the things that i was like oh yeah that makes sense <laughs> that that would be Right, that's become famous on TikTok, uh, from mm. what I understand. I haven't mm. viewed the videos myself. Mm -hmm. But DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, would be the furthest uh, mm -hmm. point on the spectrum for mm -hmm. dissociation, where you might actually have amnesia about uh, different parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. 
dissociation in the more um, common uh, uh, iteration, the way it is more commonly expressed, like the lowest level would be, why did I come into this room? What was I looking for? Um, it sounds like just forgetfulness, but really your associations have become unlinked. So there's a, a mild dissociation going on. That's the mildest form. In a cult, what you're dissociating is how terrified you are because you believe you're just being devoted and you're you're adoring and devoted. I'm not terrified. I'm I'm in heaven because I'm with the guru. You're you're dissociating from the truth of your emotional reality. And and then when you see and when people leave and you see them crash. Um, you know, I crashed when I left. I had panic attacks. Many people do when they leave a cult. Um, uh, you know, all of the things that had been uh, dissociated started to come out more than I could handle, more than I could understand all at once. So people do need help, I think, uh, when they leave cults. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so one of the things I found really interesting in in your first book, um, Dan, was that, of course, you've talked about the um, that the guru in the uh, this sort of yoga type group. Um, I've spoken right. today about my upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness, um, but you, you're also you're you're very um, willing to look at things like psychoanalysis itself and um, the relationship between the uh, therapist and the patient or, um, or the client and, and also groups themselves that are based around psychoanalytic theory. Uh, so I think it's yeah. really interesting. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you found in that area? Yeah. Well, I, I you know, when I uh, left the cult and um, told my cousin, whose wife is a psychiatrist. Oh, I'm going into psychoanalytic training. The first thing she said was, oh, from one cult to another. So this is like a very standard uh, idea about psychoanalysis. It's been around for a while. Um, And there are cult-like aspects to um, many kinds of psychology uh, trainings or systems. Um, And in fact, Every religion has a cult-like aspect. It has a human. Eric Fromm said there's a humanistic aspect and there's an authoritarian aspect, and that's true across the board. Every religion. Well, I would say it's also true of every kind of psychotherapy, including psychoanalysis. There are those who take an authoritarian turn, and the analyst is this uh, unquestioned, you know, uh, oracle that must be obeyed. That happens, and that's abusive. Or um, there's the humanistic analysts, and uh, in in the UK, they uh, some people would disagree, but um, you know, um, Ian Sutty um, and uh, Donald Winnicott, Ronald Fairburn, these were psychoanalysts in a humanistic tradition, in my opinion. And uh, those are people that have influenced me and in how I think and work as a psychotherapist. Um, so, so that um, authoritarian tendency has existed in many um, therapy groups, 
the the a new book about the Sullivanians, a very notorious group in New York, 70s, 80s, 90s, has mm-hmm. just been published. And it's very, very uh, exhaustive on just how cult-like this group was claiming to be connected to psychoanalysis. Um, and um, I, I feel that as a psychotherapist, um, it's very important to be thoughtful and mindful of one's own narcissism, uh, which would take the form of wanting your patients to be gratifying hmm. and like becoming almost coercive in terms of getting them to uh, acknowledge that you are helping them. Well, um as a patient out of a cult in a psychoanalytic treatment, I didn't want to give my therapist that. And she took the brunt of it. Well, um, my, my analyst was um, able to tolerate my defiance and my opposition. I needed to be able to have that because I had been utterly submissive for the last 13 years. Right. But there are many therapists who don't understand the importance of the patients being able to say no, the patient not being willing to gratify you. Um, and that means it's going to hit the therapist's narcissism. And that's a problem that I think should be like an occupational hazard. We should all study and understand and learn about and, and try to help each other navigate when and if our narcissism does arise. Too often, narcissistic therapists go off on their own. They hide from the rest of their colleagues. And you only find out when it hits the newspapers that they've been abusing their patients. Um, but it happens. Yeah. Well, I guess it's um, it's these power differentials, isn't it? When Whenever you have these, these um, setups, and not necessarily in themselves bad, but it happens with, with surgeons as well. And um, um, you talk about, political systems and parties and so on in in your book as well so i guess there's any uh, number of different ways these sorts of things can um can show themselves yes exactly that is what i wanted to try to convey that there's a dynamic so i called it the traumatizing narcissist relational system and it can exist in any kind of group or uh or even just a couple and um, we should learn about that, I think. I feel like we don't, um, well, I don't know about Europe. Europe might have better educational systems than the USA. I'm pretty sure they do. But, you know, we don't really learn about critical thinking. And there are pol- political movements in this country to absolutely erase critical thinking altogether, um, which is, you know, very nazi-like in my view you know the book banning that's actually Mm -hmm. going on right now Mm -hmm. here it's hard to hard to believe but it's scary Uh, oh it is and um i've i've recently um i've got a bit of a a sort of guilty pleasure that i i'm really interested in the whole ufo um um sort of debate i'm just interested for entertainment as much as anything but um wouldn't it be exciting um but once i started (laughs) to look at some of those um reports you know uh, about um claims about sort of um hidden 
spacecraft and um, alien right. bodies and all of that. You start, and all of a sudden, YouTube has started to throw at me all sorts of um, really strange and um, yeah, I've, I've, it's an area of YouTube I haven't really been fed before, and um, right. it's quite interesting to see. There's so much of this. And I wonder, we do have this polarization. Certainly, I know it's in the US, but it's over here as well in the UK and Europe. Um, this this polarization, and it's almost like there's there's a kind of cultic mentality going on with these extreme yeah. views on both sides of the aisle, really. Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunately um world worldwide and here in the uh, U.S., we're now seeing Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, getting a, a a platform for very extreme conspiracy theory views. Um, during the pandemic, where people were so isolated and frightened, I honestly had I never never before or since I was getting two or three calls a day from people who had loved ones who had become completely, um, you know, uh, taken in by conspiracy theories. And they were emptying bank accounts and they were disappearing. And they were, um, I mean, really, really tragically destroying families, these conspiracy theories. And um, it's not over that whole tendency it's not uh, it's a radicalization process that um i, I think agree. is 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 happening and yeah as i say it's not um it's not on one side of the political spectrum i don't think it, it sort of cuts across in different ways um it's its yeah. own uh it's they they call it a horseshoe when the yes. left and the right meet at the end of the horseshoe yeah they, that's where those conspiracy theories live yeah that's a good point Cool. Celine, have you got any last questions for Dan? Yeah, just one sort of last one. Um, so I was just wondering your thoughts on this. Um, so obviously you've done an incredibly large amount of research into narcissism um, and we've just coming off the back of speaking about social media uh, and you mentioning before about TikTok and the way it runs with things. Um, it, like, Do you have any thoughts on the way um narcissism is being spoken about in kind of social media um and your your thoughts and feelings about it as someone that's done you know quite a lot of research into it yeah i do have some thoughts and feelings about that i think there are a lot of people putting out good information mm -hmm. but the the problem with um trying to reach a mass audience is that you have to oversimplify things to get eyeballs, to get listeners, right? And oversimplifying has led to, and 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 uh, popularizing the ideas about narcissism, I've seen it lead to some uh, unfortunate consequences. For example, um, I see that... Um, People who who learn all about narcissism on podcasts and social media now start diagnosing everyone mm -hmm. that they have a conflict with yeah. and demonizing those people. And now they are this narcissist and they're gaslighting and they're this and they're that. And 
most people don't realize that they have become the narcissist in that scenario. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the pitfalls of this kind of oversimplification and popularization. People start to believe they have the ability to diagnose anybody they want to diagnose. And I have never believed that narcissism was a diagnosis. I think it's a way people behave. Uh, I don't see the I don't see the benefit to thinking of it as a diagnosis, and yet it gets used. Diagnoses get weaponized, so that's one thing that happens uh, as a result of a lot of social media sim- oversimplification. Again, I don't want to um, talk, uh, you know, um, paint uh, everybody out there in that same brush, but there because there are people doing good work out there in that space. But the, the danger of oversimplification is this um, weaponizing of diagnoses, is what I would call it. Um, I'm actually trying, all right, this is my first public admission. I'm trying to see if I can write a book that would be for my books are written for therapists, even though they are actually more widely read than that. But I, I intended them initially for the mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Jilly's book, which is definitely for survivors, and um, Yanya Lalek's book, Alexandra's book is also a little more academic, but I recommend it to everyone. Mm. Um, even so, because it's just worth it. If, you, if you're not an academic, but you can read it, it's so informative. Um, but it would be great to put this information out to people in ways that was accessible without being oversimplified. That would be the real challenge so we'll mm-hmm. see it's a it's a great point it's a great question mm-hmm. Selena. and and um it reminds me a bit of the whole use of the word cult you know we we um obviously we have the word cult in our in our podcast title um but it 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 can be sort of used for any group that you disagree with and i worry about yeah. that because it 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 sort of reduces the the meaning and impact of of the word if it's going to mean yeah. something it can't mean everything so that's yeah, right that's, that's right yeah mm-hmm. um okay well um dan is there anything that you wanted to say that, that I, we haven't asked you about anything that have you got any mm. um thing coming up that you want to talk about any um you know, I'm excited or... uh, with some teaching opportunities. I'll be t- uh, speaking to a couple of hundred Russian-speaking psychotherapists at the invitation of uh, a Russian uh, psychotherapist who's fluent in English who will be organizing the event in the fall. I uh, I put those kinds of events um, on my website, which is just uh, LCSW stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. And my website is danielshawlcsw.com. So I I list events there. Um, From time to time, mostly I speak to professional audiences of other psychotherapists. But um, now and then uh, there's an event that's, um, you know, the public is welcome. And some people are, you know, almost like power professionals they know a lot about it and they they enjoy those types of presentations um i am working on a a book that i hope to see someday reach a wider public um that will be years down the road i'm sure and um 
Otherwise, I'm just uh, just here <laughs> in my practice. Uh, I've been doing it for since I left in '94. Uh, um, I got my license in '96. I've been doing it since then. I'll be doing it for you know. I enjoy it, and I'll be here as long as I can. So, well, we'll put a link to your website on our show notes, and um, mm. people can sort of check it, check out what you're up to on that. Uh, Daniel Shaw, mm. it's been absolutely fantastic talking mm. to you today. Thank, Thank you very you. much for coming on Court Hackers. Thank you, Stephen and Selena. It's been great meeting you. It's great being with you.